Amen. Well, as you're grabbing a seat, turn to somebody sitting next to you and say, you picked a good morning to be in church. That's right. Get friendly. Now look the other direction and say, you picked a good morning to be in church. All right. Sounds like you sort of believe it. We'll see if we can get you all the way there by the end of the service. But no, you picked a good Sunday to be in church because we are wrapping up a sermon series all about this idea of blessed to be a blessing. This is a phrase that comes out of scripture and comes out of the story of a man named Abraham. And what we've been talking about is God decided that he wanted to do something new in the world to take on human agents and partners to begin to work through them to impact the whole scope of humanity. This is a story that we're still living into and participating in today. And so over the last couple of weeks, we have looked at parts of Abraham's story to understand what it actually means to be blessed, to be a blessing today. And in week one, we kind of talked about this idea of tribalism and how God was asking Abraham to start a new kind of tribe, one that wasn't focused on their own self-interest and securing as much resources for themselves as possible, but one leveraging their tribe to impact humanity and impact all of the other tribes. And then last week, we looked at this idea of kind of ancient hospitality and how through Abraham, God decided to introduce a new form of extravagant, radical, biblical hospitality. And this morning, we're going to look at one last component, one dynamic that existed in that early um, time period that Abraham begins to do something and God takes it and begins to do something new with it. So this morning to start us, I need show hands. How many here, if you're the firstborn in your family? We're, we're all of our bossy people at firstborn in the family. That's right. Okay. Now firstborn males, let me see a show of hands. Firstborn males. That's right. Yes. The few, the proud, the mighty. Uh, I'm a firstborn male in my family and it's not that big of a deal nowadays, uh, depending on your family, but in this early ancient context, it was a really big deal. You see, there was this dynamic that existed that some would argue still exists in parts and forms that it was a patriarchal society. And what that meant was that the oldest male of the family was kind of the one who was in charge of the family. And what it looked like was the patriarch, the oldest male, maybe the grandfather or great-grandfather, whatever time period, as they were building their family, they would add rooms to their tent or their house. So if you've ever visited Israel, what you know is at times in certain areas, they build on top of kind of the first floor is the original patriarch's house and their little area. And then they build above that and then above that and then above that as children get older, add wives and children into this expanding family. It's like when you go on vacation and like, you know, the parents pay for everything. And so you get one big house and everybody's in the house together. It's like that. You look at me like y'all have never had that happen in your life. Come on now. I know who pays for some of y'all's vacations. This is what happens. So there's still kind of remnants of that today. Now in this kind of early context, in this patriarchal society, we all lived as a part of our kind of nuclear family. This was kind of a subcontext of our tribe. And so the oldest male would build a little room or a little tent. And then if he had sons and they begin to marry off and had wives, they would add additional rooms. And so over time, you would see this development of this compound. And if you go back and you look at some of the ancient ruins, you see how this begins to work. Now, it wasn't just kind of a dynamic that played out in architecture, but it was also a dynamic that played out in terms of how families operated. 
So the patriarch had a responsibility not to everyone in the family. They didn't just have the authority of the one being in charge, but they had a responsibility. Now, so what they would do is they would kind of aggregate all of the family's resources. So all of the different members of the family had jobs, they'd work, you know, whatever land that they owned, whatever that produced, it would all come into the family. And then the oldest male, the patriarch, he would be responsible for managing all of the assets of the family. Now, he would manage the assets, but he would also ensure that all of the needs of the family were provided for as well. So if you were not the oldest male in your family, you had to depend on your, old, your oldest sibling or your oldest kind of relative, male relative, to provide for your food, your shelter, your clothing, anything that the family or a member of the family needed. The oldest male was responsible for that. Now, it wasn't just this component in dynamic, but there's an additional component. And this is what we start to see happen kind of in the story of Abraham. And it's this particular word that denotes a certain role and responsibility of the oldest patriarch. And it's this word, goel. Everybody say goel. Goel. Yeah, goel. And it means to redeem or to act as a redeemer. Now, for some of you, if you grew up in a church context, this idea of redeem you know this is a religious term. But in this original context, it was not a religious term. It was a term that came out of the responsibility of the patriarch. Now what redeem means is to go and to buy back or to bring back, to restore back into the family. For example, if you are the patriarch of the family, just imagine if you will, and one of your younger brothers or one of your sons or one of your son's wives is out working the field and a foreign you know, group comes by and kidnaps them and takes them off, what you would do is you would leverage all of the resources of the family and you would go and you would buy back or bring back that member of your family and restore them back into the household. You see, this large compound that everybody lived in, in this patriarchal society, was called the father's house. And so your job was to go and to restore people back in to the father's house. Now, thousands of years later, we see a man named Jesus show up and talk about, in my father's house, there are many rooms I go to prepare a place for you. This is the same idea as it's being kind of adopted into a religious context. But in this early context, if you're the patriarch, your job is to redeem anyone who has been marginalized or estranged from the family. Now, it wasn't just people who got kidnapped. There could be other circumstances or situations that would cause somebody to be separated from the family. For example, if one of the family members got into a financial difficulty, one of the options available to them at the time was to sell themselves into kind of a form of servanthood what they would do is they would basically rent themselves out to work as a laborer in somebody, on somebody else's farm or in their compound or whatever until the debt was paid or until a certain amount of money was restored. Now, the patriarch could at any point go and pay for whatever the debt that was owed and redeem, goel, bring back that person into the family. Now, you could also goel or redeem assets that belong to the family. So if your knucklehead brother ended up selling a piece of land that was a really important part of the farm, and you're like, why did you do that? That was too low of a price. You could have asked for 20% more, whatever the dynamics were. You could go and you could buy back, you could redeem that asset into the family. 
Now, this is kind of this really important concept that we see play out in Abraham's life that eventually becomes a really important component of what God begins to do with humanity and with Abraham and his family. So let me take you to this kind of first instance where we see this action of Goel, of redeeming occur in the life of Abraham. This is in Genesis chapter 14. So what's happening is there's kind of this geopolitical conflict. There's a group of kings who form kind of one group to go and do battle with another group of kings. And this is what ensues. So the kings and their armies took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went away. So one group of kings defeated another group of kings. And as you do, when you defeat another group of kings, you Treat yourself to the spoils of war. You ransack the villages and the towns and the cities and you collect all the goods and bounty that you can acquire because to the victor goes the spoils. This is what happens. But in doing so, this group of kings, they also took Lot, who was Abram's. He wasn't Abraham yet. Abram's nephew, who lived in Sodom and his possessions, and then they left. So in the process of this city, Sodom and Gomorrah, being defeated by this group of kings, Lot gets taken capture. So this is what happens next. Servant survives this conflict, goes and escapes and runs to Abram. And he says, listen, Abram, you're living by these oaks of Mamre. And he says, when Abram heard that his relative Lot had been captured, what does he do? What any Goel, what any redeemer, what any patriarch would do? He leverages the family resources. And in this case, he calls... 318 trained men, it's a very specific number, 318 trained men of the household, and they went in pursuit. You do what you do if somebody from your house gets kidnapped. This is not that strange of a concept because parents, we all know if something happened to one of our children, we would do whatever it takes. We'd move heaven and earth to rescue our children. Abraham does the same thing, but he does it with his nephew, Lot. So, He takes this army of 318 trained men who are part of his household and they go after him. It says, during the night, Abram divided his men and attacked them and he routed them. He didn't just defeat them, but he routed them. Big win. It's like some of these like early season, like college football games where they, you know, play community colleges. They're like, look at that victory. Anyway, he recovered all of their possessions and brought back his nephew Lot and all the other people. Abram demonstrates what it means to be a goel, to be a redeemer. Now, inevitably, what happens when the patriarch dies in a family? Well, all of the resources, all of the responsibility, all of the authority of that role then move down to the oldest male. Now, in our context, what we see happen is anytime somebody's estate, you know, gets left to a group of children, there oftentimes ends up being conflict about who was left what, how it was divided, why it was divided. And you see a lot of conflict that happens in our families when states are kind of left to the children. Not in this early context. In this early context, everybody understood that the oldest male got most of the family resources and assets. But it wasn't a source of contention. In fact, if the patriarch died and you weren't the oldest male, you would be excited that your older brother or your father or your father-in-law got all of the resources. In fact, you would be dancing in the street singing songs about how 
there's a new patriarch, a new redeemer in the family because they're the ones who are responsible providing you with all of your needs. You didn't have to take on that burden for yourself. Somebody else was in charge of paying the bills and keeping the lights on and putting a roof over your head and providing food for the table. There was a relief because you could trust in the redeeming that would happen for this family, the provision and the protection that would happen through this patriarch. Now, in the context of what happens in this early century with Abram, Eventually what happens is God takes Abraham and grows his family. And we see kind of on Mount Sinai as Moses has led the people of Israel out of captivity. This family has grown into be a huge nation as he leads them out of captivity in Egypt. He brings them up to this mountain and he starts a new covenant with them. And he says, all right, now I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And in that context, God talks about how Israel has a new responsibility. God has redeemed Israel. God has saved Israel. He's rescued them. He's bought them and brought them back into the family. And now God has a firstborn. And this firstborn is the people of Israel. And the message to Israel is really clear. I'm going to give you more resources than all of the other nations on earth. And the reason is not for your own benefit. The reason is not so that you can spend as you wish, so that you can you know, flaunt it in the face of all of the other nations. The reason that you get more than everybody else, the reason that you are chosen people, is because through you, I'm going to bless all of the other nations on the earth. You're the firstborn. You have all of this power, resource, and authority, but it comes with a responsibility. You have to take care of everybody else. You have to look out for everybody else. You have to restore everyone back in to the father's house. And now the father's house is understood is not just a physical location, but it's an identity. It's a community. It's a group of people. The people of God are now understood to be the father's house. And so this is the role that the people of Israel are given. Now, as we know from stories in scripture, that doesn't go so well. They struggle with the resources, they struggle with the authority, they struggle with the responsibility. They end up kind of misusing all that they've been given until a man named Jesus comes along to remind the people of God what their role and responsibility was. He says, listen, the job here is to redeem. The, the job here is to be a goel, to go out and to save and rescue those who were lost. Over and over and over again, Jesus paints word pictures about a woman who loses a coin. She has nine others, but this one coin that's lost is really important. And so what does she do? She doesn't say, oh, well, at least I still have nine. No. She cleans and sweeps her entire house. She gets on her hands and knees doing everything she can, exerting all of her physical resources and energy. What? to find, to redeem, to restore the lost coin. Or, Jesus paints another word picture, suppose you have a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off. Who wouldn't leave the 99 and go after the one? Well, most of us wouldn't, but God would. And Jesus is saying, remember your role as God's firstborn? Your role as the goel is to do whatever it takes to go and to search out, 
to discover and find and rescue and redeem those who are lost. And so you'd go and you'd find that one sheep and do whatever it took to bring it back into the fold, to bring it back into the family, to restore into the father's house. And then he tells one last story about two brothers. The younger brother isn't patient enough to wait for his father to die. And he says, I want my resources now. Go ahead and give them to me. My inheritance, I'd like that, please. And then he goes and squanders it. And then he gets to a place where he's so destitute that he's willing to live and to eat what the pigs are eating. And eventually he kind of summons up enough awareness to say, I should just go back to my father's house and be a servant. Not on the same level as sonship, but to be a servant in my father's house. And then as he's walking back up the long drive, the father sees them, runs out to greet him. Why? The son of mine was lost and is now found. Jesus is trying to help us understand something about how God views the world, about how God views his children, and about what our role and responsibility is. You see, Israel was originally God's firstborn. Then Jesus came, and he became God's only begotten firstborn. And so as Jesus is reminding people of their role and their mission, he says, if you want to be like me, if you want to be a follower of mine, if you, like Ali said, our understanding of this Christian project is to live like Jesus, if you want to do what I'm doing, then you have to take up the role and the responsibility of Goel. You have to take up the mantle. You have to do whatever you can to leverage your resources to rescue, to redeem those who are lost. We see Jesus talking to his disciples about this kind of context between like authority and responsibility. They're kind of arguing over like who's going to be you know, in a higher place in Jesus's kind of empire that he's building. They recognize that there's something different happening with the person of Jesus. And they're like, oh, we're on the winning team. We've got the lottery ticket, Jesus. Who's going to be at your right hand? Who's going to kind of be like the second in command? And Jesus tells them this to remind them, one, that they have totally missed the picture, and two, to clarify what it is that they should be doing. This is out of Mark. And he says, Jesus said, the rulers of this world... They lord their position over their people, and officials flaunt authority over those beneath them. Jesus is setting up a contrast about how the way the world used to be. Thank God it's not like that anymore, right? Oh, that one kind of fell flat, huh? All right, well, we can talk about it later. What he says, though, is like the way that you see how people operate, they take their authority, they take their power, and they use it for themselves. They misuse the resources that have been given to them. They mishandle all that they have by virtue of their position, by virtue of their wealth, by virtue of their station in life. Jesus says, this is how the world works. But let me tell you how we're going to work. He says, but among you, it will be different. Other translations say, but it will not be so with you. This is Jesus speaking to his followers. Just as true then as it is true today. When you come into resources, when you recognize all that you have emotionally, relationally, financially, when you take inventory of all that you have, are you using it? Are you stewarding it the way that the world does for your own gain and benefit? 
She says, this is not how it's supposed to be with my followers. This is not what we're called to do. You have a role and responsibility to the people around you. It will not be this way with you. Whoever wants to be a leader, whoever wants to be great, whoever wants to be first in the kingdom, what's the contrast? They have to be a servant. They have to become the lowest. They have to leverage their life for the sake of others. They have to empty their life to let go of what they're holding on to tightly and use it for the benefit of others. And then he says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This word ransom is connected to that idea of go well. Jesus says, listen, the whole reason I'm here is to act as a redeemer for the world, to bring those lost children back into relationship, to bring them back into the house of God. It's not just a spiritual context that Jesus is discussing here, but it's a socioeconomic context. Jesus is saying there are people in this world who are hurting, who are in need, who are lost, who are lonely, who are without. And if you're my follower, it's your responsibility. You're the firstborn. It's your job to do whatever it takes to bring those children home to do whatever it takes to rescue and redeem those who are lost, those who are disconnected, those who feel like the church can't be a place where they're welcome. Whatever it takes. It's the reason that we're doing Surf Sunday next week because it's not about just waiting for people to come into this building, but it's about the church, Jesus' followers, leaving this place and going somewhere else to leverage our resources, to leverage our time, to leverage all that we've been given for the sake of other people. That's what it means to be a redeemer. That's what it means to be a goel. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not just about how do we tend to our personal relationship with God. We wake up in the morning and we say our prayers and we make sure that God and I are right and then you just live your life taking advantage of all that you've been given that falls way short of what Jesus is calling his followers to do. So as you look around your life, as you look at your sphere of influence, whether it's a friend group at school, it's a business you run, it's a group of friends that you are embedded in, how can we begin to rethink our responsibility to the people around us? What about to the people we don't know? To the people that we barely come in contact with? What would it look like to rethink our ability to take on a new responsibility to the other people around us? To not just drive by, to not just turn our head away, but to view them as children that God wants to be restored back into the family. There are, there's plenty of room in the Father's house. And what would it look like for us to rethink our role in bringing people back home? What would it look like for us to reimagine the ways that we use our resources, all that we've been given, in all of the different contexts that we have in abundance? It's not just a financial context. With our time, with our words, with our kindness, with our energy, what would it look like for us to rethink how we're supposed to steward those resources? 
it's easy to get focused on what we need, what we want, what we'd like more of, all of the things that feel incomplete that if we could just have, finally have that, then life would be okay. That's not how the Goel is supposed to steward the resources of the family. They're earmarked for the needs of the community, for the needs of the entire family. As we look across the needs of the world or the needs in the city of Dallas or the needs in our community, you can get as micro or as macro as you'd like. The issues are never about resources. It's always about allocation. So as followers of Jesus Christ, what is our responsibility to steward what we have better? As a church, what is our responsibility to take more seriously our call to care for those in our community, those who don't have on any level? And then lastly, what would it look like to take a renewed sense of purpose and our job to invite people to come into the family, to come back to the Father's house. It's one thing to go out, that's important. But how are we extending kindness and generosity and invitation to come in, to say there's space here for you, there's room here for you. There are plenty of rooms in the Father's house. Would you come to church with me on Sunday? Would you join me? I'll save you a seat. What would it look like for us to live this way? To reimagine what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to take seriously God's charge to be a redeemer. If, if we could get that just a little bit right, if this group could start to institute this in our spheres of influence, in our schools, in our friend groups, in our places of employment, if we could begin to rethink our role and responsibility and relationship to other people along, terms, along the terms of a Goel, of a Redeemer, then we could change everything. It's not hyperbole. There are enough people and resources in this church that we could make such an impact in our community in the lives of the people that we come in contact with. As we get ready to celebrate Serve Sunday next week, my prayer would be that that would be the first step of many for us, both as individuals and as a collective community. God has given us a charge. He has given us a responsibility. And I hope we take it seriously. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you have blessed us beyond measure. God, help us to never forget that these blessings are to be used to bless others. Let us empty our lives, every aspect, every component, and see our role as someone who is charged, as a community who is expected to work to bring others home. God, thank you that you have received us home, that you have made space for us, and that you invite us to do the same for others. We pray this in your name. Amen.